Good morning, everyone. Pleasure to be with you. This is Michael Millerman, millermanschool.com. I thought that today we could go over this article together, Why China Loves Conservatives by Eric Hendricks Kim in First Things. It's not behind any paywall, so we're not breaking any rules, just helping the author and the topic uh, with promotion. I haven't read this yet, but it's a great topic. So First Things is the magazine. Check them out, subscribe, read their articles. And here we go, Why China Loves Conservatives. Conservatives in the West see in the People's Republic of China a daunting nemesis, an oppressive tech dystopia ruled by a Leninist party that negates conservatism's attachment to civil society, Christianity, and individual liberties. You might expect the intellectual mainstream in mainland China to denounce Western conservatism in return. China is still formally communist, and its leading traditions of political thought, New Confucianism, Marxism, and Dengist reformism, do not overlap with Western conservative outlooks. What affinities could there possibly be between Western conservatism and the intellectual mainstream in China? A closer look reveals a surprising answer. In China, there's a great deal of love for Western conservative authors. The works of Samuel Huntington and Leo Strauss, for instance, are studied and admired by Chinese intellectuals and academics. I'll just pause for a minute. One reason for sure why Huntington would be of interest is because you have the rise of civilizational thinking. And therefore, wherever you have somebody working on the concept of civilization, you'll have an interest outside of the West because civilization is now a key political concept. The works of Samuel Huntington and Leo Strauss, uh, as many of you know, in my opinion, the gold standard teacher of the history of political philosophy, I highly recommend reading Leo Strauss if you never have before. I have several courses on him in the school, but independently of that, you must familiarize yourselves with Leo Strauss. Uh, those works are studied and admired by Chinese intellectuals and academics. And Chinese interpretations of American politics often parallel those of the American right. These affinities undoubtedly have many causes, but one shared belief stands out, a profound sense that any society and a healthy one in particular, is held together by an integral, holistic culture. By the way, there was another article, I think it was in First Things, by Matthew Rose on Leo Strauss and the closed society. That was a recent article. So if you take a look at that, you'll have another sense here of why the uh, author is writing that Strauss held a healthy society in particular, is held together by an integral, holistic culture, the notion of the closed society as opposed to the open society. Anyway, to continue with the article, Chinese thinkers are quote-unquote politically incorrect when measured against the progressive liberal standards dominant in North American universities. By the way, when I was a teaching assistant at the University of Toronto, I sometimes had students stay after class in Politics 101 or whatever the case is and you know, talk to me about uh, what they heard and what they're interested in. And the most common experience I had probably was Chinese students staying after class to tell me that they couldn't believe how ideologically dogmatic the Paul 101 uh, lectures had been. Obviously, they knew that I work on Dugan. They knew that they could speak a little bit more freely after class than they could during class, that kind of thing. Chinese thinkers are politically incorrect when measured against the progressive liberal standards dominant in North American universities. The Chinese term for North America's identity politics, Baizo, sorry for pronunciation, white left, is strongly derogatory. It implies something like the wild stuff lefty whites say these days. You probably capture a lot under that umbrella. Even scholars from China's most liberal faction, such as intellectual historian, 
Okay, I once again am aware now how much I need to uh, learn Chinese pronunciation. But uh, intellectual historian Zhu Zhilin judged North uh, America's Baizu to be excessive and divisive. In a forum on Black Lives Matter, Zhu criticized the coercive tactics the movement employs, which amount to purging history and only provoke deeper racial and ethnic conflicts. Okay, so Chinese anti-leftism, anti-Baizu uh, insanity. To many of a certain age, such as the dissident artist Ai Weiwei, again, I apologize for all pronunciation, I'm painfully aware here of how bad it is, Baizu recalls Mao's cultural revolution. The memory of its terror against class enemies, committed in the name of cultural equality, leaves these thinkers allergic to progressive hyper-idealism, the kind of idealism that believes egalitarian utopia would materialize if only critics and moderates did not stand in the way of historical progress. They recognize that thought pattern wherever it emerges, and they know that narrow-mindedness, coercion, and worse come in its train. No more of that, please. This wariness extends to social and political theory. The Western thinkers shunned by today's progressive liberals in the West attract the most interest in China. And some of you may know that Dugan, for example, uh, lectured in China and had connections with other universities and institutions there. When I, the author, writes, and just to remind you, those of you who are tuning in, nice to be with you, good to see you. We're reading Why China Loves Conservatives, published in First Things Magazine, written by Eric Hendricks Kim. So to go back here. When I worked at Peking University a few years ago, I noticed that Samuel Huntington was cited frequently and taken seriously. You know, you, here we have the Fukuyama faction, right? But outside the West, you have the Huntington faction because there the concept of civilization matters. As David Ownby of the Center of East Asian Studies at the University of Montreal observed, hey, I'm in Montreal, I should track this guy down. Huntington, a cultural conservative, is strangely beloved by many Chinese intellectuals, even Chinese liberals. But strangely is the wrong word for obvious factors favor Huntington's popularity in China. Huntington rejected the West's universalistic self-understanding, predicted a rise in Asian confidence, and disentangled modernization from liberal democracy. And as some of you listening probably know, he also said that the first civilizational fault line um, would be Russia-Ukraine. Uh, one of the most likely ones. His Political Order in Changing Societies, 1968, argued that political order and state capacity are more important variables than liberal democracy when it comes to modernization. As it happens, contemporary China prides itself on having disproven the thesis widely touted by liberal theorists after the end of the Cold War that modernization requires the West's liberal democratic model. Zhang Shigong, a prominent political theorist and public intellectual on the Chinese mainland, expresses a central reason for the Harvard political scientist's appeal. Quote, Huntington criticized Western political theory for its dogmatic ideological belief that liberal democratic governments represent the highest political ideal. Okay, you see here. Again, we're reading from first things, not breaking any rules, I hope, bringing attention to the author, to the article, and to the publication. Let's continue. Huntington's clash of civilizations offers another point of contact. Though initially unpersuaded by its pessimistic forecast of inevitable conflict, Chinese intellectuals have come to judge the book's thesis about the geopolitical importance of civilizations and cultures to be correct. Huntington's strongly culturalist angle, which accords religion and cultural values subordinate roles, reinforces China's official self-understanding. CCP propaganda consistently plays the culture card, arguing that China should not become 
a Western-style liberal democracy because to do so would go against China's cultural values. Huntington argues that cultures should respect each other's political systems and manage differences rather than attempt to eradicate them. Chairman Xi's call for inter-civilizational dialogue and difference approximates this line so closely that, as literature professor Human Jin of Sichuan University observes, it is as if Xi were intentionally responding to Huntington's expectations and concerns. Uh, by the way, needless to say, although I don't know whether the article mentions Dugan, we'll see as we go through it, civilizations are such a key concept for Dugan. He's written about them in the fourth political theory with reference to Huntington. And uh, there you go. A similar contrast, admiration in China, abhorrence in American academia, applies to Leo Strauss. Strauss, who taught at the University of Chicago in the 1950s and 1960s, is often cited at gatherings of conservative intellectuals who don't have academic posts. In departments of political science and philosophy, his ideas are confined to a few eccentric corners. I can confirm having worked, I mean, studied in departments of political science and philosophy. How very different is the situation in China? There, Strauss has gained a cult following, as Matthew Dean observed. Chinese translators and editors of his work are so enthusiastic and diligent that at present, more Strauss is available in print in Chinese than in English, which is truly remarkable. Read Leo Strauss, study Leo Strauss, understand Leo Strauss. Like I said, I've got videos on him, I've got courses on him, but independently of all of that, mark the name. Two pioneers of Straussianism in China, uh, Luyi Zhaofeng and Zhen Yang, studied under Alan Bloom. Also, by the way, well worth knowing and studying. They preface each volume in their co-edited series, Sources of Western Scholarship, with a warning that Strauss and his students would have appreciated. Quote, Chinese scholars who embrace a healthy reading of the West maintain an attitude of skepticism toward the systems of Western thought and are even more vigilant in the face of the various fashionably strange theories found on Western college campuses. Unquote. What attracts Chinese scholars to Strauss's works? According to Mark Lilla, who wrote an essay on this question after spending time in China in 2010, widespread dissatisfaction with liberal conceptions of political life makes Strauss appealing, for Strauss too doubted the adequacy of modern liberalism. Lilla also identifies Strauss's idea of an elite class educated to serve the public good, which resonates with China's Confucian tradition. He adds that Chinese readers appreciate that Strauss takes them on a grand tour of Western political philosophy. So three reasons why Chinese scholars are attracted to Strauss's work, incidentally, three reasons that may attract you to his work as well. He doubts the adequacy of modern liberalism. He has something to write about an elite class, but not in the sense of our corrupt, incompetent, illiterate elites, and that reading Strauss gives you a grand tour of Western political philosophy, which indeed it does. I, the author continues, would add another factor. Strauss's view of society matches a Chinese preference for what might be called cultural holism. Drawing on the Greek tradition, Strauss treats societies as politico-cultural wholes, each with a particular overall character, its politeia, or, in his translation of the Greek term, its regime. As he puts it in What is Political Philosophy, an essay that I can't recommend highly enough, Regime means that whole which we today are in the habit of viewing primarily in a fragmentized form. Regime means simultaneously the form of life of a society, its style of life, its moral taste, form of society, form of state, form of government, spirit of laws. Unquote. 
Chinese thinkers likewise reason in terms of regimes. In his 1991 travel memoir, America Against America, Wang Huning approached American society as an integral cultural political regime. Wang, then a professor of international politics and now one of China's top political figures, tried to capture the overall spirit of American life. He noted that Americans have a much more fragmented social imagination than do the Chinese. This lack of an integral sense of who they are makes Americans incapable of grasping the interlinked nature of their country's ills. Americans prize individualism. Belief in it is a cornerstone of the American regime. But Wang sees this mentality as the cause of social breakdown or worse still, break up. There's a pattern in the Chinese attraction to conservative thinkers. Strauss and Huntington conceive of politics as embedded in distinct national and regional forms of life, that is, in what we commonly call cultures. Chinese intellectuals see the world in the same way. Social life and political reality are formed within, and form in turn, cultural wholes. Culture, writes Human Jin and Tilos, can never be just one thing, divided from other things, since culture appears as a whole. Cultural values hold a society together. As Zhu Jilin explains, a country's internal order of justice requires powerful common values with substantive content. He criticizes the strands of American liberalism that neglect this fact. Zhu argues that such liberalism, which relies on legal rights and procedural norms, demands too little from its citizens, while ironically expecting too much normative convergence internationally. Modern liberalism promotes Western human rights standards without realizing that they're narrowly Western and incongruent with many axial civilizations. A point here that should be very familiar to those of you who do any work on Dugan, not to mention Huntington and Strauss. Progressive liberal ideology, the author continues, seeks to downplay cultural wholes. It envisions the world in universalist, uh, excuse me, in universal globalist terms while reducing national societies to collections of atomized individuals. In its advanced form as identity politics, this version of liberalism views individuals as members of intersecting identity categories, categories that are not real communities and cultures, but rather demographic abstractions, such as Asian American and LGBTQIA+. The word community may be added to such abstractions, as in LGBTQIA community, but it is empty, for none of the identity politics categories are concrete communities with shared cultural lives. Indeed, the pseudo-solidarity of identity politics further atomizes the individual by undermining the legitimacy of inherited cultures. The outcome is not accidental. Progressive liberals seek to weaken the hold of larger cultural collectives by erasing them from their accounts of the world order, accounts they disseminate using their dominance in the West's humanities and social science departments. Many conservatives in the West criticize this project. That's true, and this journal, First Things, is one of the publications that does so, and Chinese intellectuals find themselves in agreement. Western intellectual life has not always been hostile to a culturally holistic understanding. The founding figures of Western sociology conceived of societies as organic wholes or as distinct and coherent arenas of conflict and resource allocation. True, French sociologist Emile Durkheim and German sociologist Max Weber highlighted the ways in which modern societies had become more internally differentiated on the level of professions and value spheres. But according to Durkheim, modern societies nonetheless continued to be unified by a shared social imagination. And though Weber, by the way, whom Strauss wrote about at length, was more attuned to value conflicts within cultures than Durkheim was, 
His studies of the socioeconomic legacies of various world religions compared different civilizations. For Weber, the civilizational orders of Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and China each consist of a unique dynamic of values and traditions, giving rise to distinct forms of social life. Let me just pause here again. We're reading this for the first time. I want to point out, for those of you who are listening and following along, that even though right here we have Leo Strauss brought together with the founding fathers of Western sociology, since both of them conceive of societies as organic wholes, you remember we saw with Strauss that under the notion of the regime, things are brought together, and here they're brought together in this way. You should be aware that there's a serious and foundational dispute between Strauss and Weber, between classical political science, classical political philosophy, or classical political rationalism on one hand, and modern sociology on the other, even if in some sense they're both anti-individualistic uh, in the way the author has described here. But let's, uh, let's go on. By the way, nice to see everybody in the chat. Thank you for being here with me. I appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to share this article with you. It's a great topic. And uh, let's continue. In Western academia, comparative civilizational theorizing of the sort Weber undertook was last entirely respectable in 1963 when Israeli sociologist Shmuel Eisenstadt in The Political System of Empires explained how Europe, Japan, China, and Islam had produced different versions of modernity. Since then, fragmenting visions have reigned. Etiquette in Western academia requires that we not quote-unquote reify or essentialize cultures, that we avoid the terms civilization and Western world, which are said to stimulate jingoism and underwrite the oppression of non-Western peoples. Large cultural units are suspect. It is acceptable to attach the adjective cultural to microgroupings. Subcultures are fine, but postulating something like American culture would seem overly stereotyping, insufficiently attuned to diversity, even reactionary. I can attest that does capture the spirit of uh, what you're required to say and think on a university campus. Reflections on what unifies, unifies a society, the cultural holism that Chinese scholars take for granted, is said to benefit nationalist political programs, which professors and students must ostentatiously abhor. You can't be a civilizationalist on a university campus, in other words. Against this possibility, Western academics highlight subcultures and thin identity groups, alongside the study of formal institutions and globalization. Anything is fine, really, as long as it breaks open the supposedly suffocating patchwork of national attachments and civilizational blocks. True. No nationalism, no Eurasianism, no civilizationalism, just the, uh, this other kind of cultural diversity, the thin and sort of trivial kind. As a result, Western academics reject out of hand cultural comparisons based on shared traditions, and they underestimate the extent to which humanity's cultural life is organized in distinct and well-consolidated blocks, as Huntington describes. Of course, cultures are not perfectly distinct. There have always been porous border zones, diasporas, subgroupings, local variations, and free-roaming individuals with unique identity assemblages. And by the way, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that they like to talk about at universities when you get into this topic. So they would never talk really about the civilizational blocks, but they would talk about the porous border zones, the identity assemblages everything that um, displaces and marginalizes and deconstructs. But, as the author continues, if we focus exclusively on these aspects, we underestimate how block-like much of cultural life on Earth nevertheless remains. Nice point. A recent study on nationology by Playman Akaliski and others, oops, hold on, sorry, I clicked off the window, compares the explanatory power of national units in the World Values Survey 
to that of alternative grouping units such as religion and ethnicity. It turns out that nations capture the bulk of the explainable variation in an individual's cultural values. Contrary to many scholars' intuitions, alternative social aggregates such as ethnic, linguistic, and religious groups, as well as diverse socio-demographic categories, add negligible explained variance to that already captured by nations. Thus, the prevailing view of Chinese scholars and of many Western conservatives that nations are not only very real units of culture, but in most instances more important than other differentiations turns out to be true. Again, for those of you following along, the Straussian parallel there, to a large extent, maybe not perfectly, but to a large extent, is the regime. Okay, so it's the, the regime type is the single factor. Um, anyhow, here we have the notion of the nation and of the importance of the nation and of the importance of the concept of the nation, all of which, uh, according to this article, Western Academia, uh, doesn't understand, adequately rejects, or criminalizes. He didn't say that, I say that. In an earlier study, sociologists Ronald Engelhart and Christian Welzel presented their well-known world culture map. It shows that respondents to the World Values Survey and European Values Study, if grouped by nationality, cluster into larger world cultural regions or civilizations. Engelhart and Welzel contrasted traditional and secular values as well as survival and self-expression values. Uh, the y-axis traditional secular shows the weight respondents give to religion, family values, and legitimate authority. The x-axis survival expression, I guess we'll see this in a chart in a minute, runs from economic and physical security concerns to subjective well-being and quality of life. Uh, world regional patterns are discernible if the national averages are pla uh, placed on a scatter plot. So basically, here we go. You have civilizational groupings is the bottom line. Okay, A study that once again showed that people see themselves as and act as though they're grouped into these blocks. Okay, Baltic, Orthodox, African, Islamic, Latin American, Catholic Europe, Confucian, Protestant Europe, English-speaking, cultural map of the world. Putting together the two research findings that national belonging covers the bulk of variation and that nations group into larger cultural units, it appears that our cultural world to a great degree is one of people within nations and nations within civilizations. Okay, that's... Uh, civilizationalists posting their wins. So the tendency of Western conservatives and Chinese scholars to imagine a world of cultural boxes is not wildly off the mark. The view of nations and civilizations as central realities for political life has a far sounder empirical basis than do progressive liberal attempts to think outside the culture box. Society has moral substance, cultural differences matter, and civilizations are real. Chinese thinkers and Western conservatives agree on these fundamental points. Both groups regard society as a thickly cultured whole held together by shared values. But of course, the convergence has limits. The cultural holisms that Chinese thinkers and Western conservatives perceive in society and embrace politically differ in substance. The holism that is aligned with Western conservatism's emphasis on national culture and civilizational identity differs from the holism of Chinese political thought as the latter is grounded in views of human nature, social cohesion, and political authority that Western conservatives reject, but possibly haven't always rejected. I add, Chinese thinkers often hold the utopian belief that leaders and societies are morally perfectible. This optimism allows modern Chinese philosophers to expect that with good leadership and sustained efforts of moral education, selfishness and partiality will one day disappear from people's hearts. When I, the author writes, first stumbled on this belief in my readings of Chinese philosophy, I could not get myself to take it seriously. But in 2017, I tutored a high schooler in Beijing. 
On various occasions, this student suggested that having discussions with people was pointless, for such discussions are soon going to end. He explained that a unifying moral truth would soon emerge, after which people would have nothing to debate. Why bicker when disagreement itself was about to become obsolete? This sincere, bright teacher, excuse me, teenager, was echoing a broad strand in Chinese political thought, one that sinologist and political theorist Thomas Metzger labels Chinese utopianism. In A Cloud Across the Pacific, Metzger characterizes Chinese utopianism as the belief that the concrete here and now not only should, but also could be made morally perfect. This faith derives from a modern reworking of Confucian idealism. For pre-modern Neo-Confucians, humanity's golden age lay in a distant past, when the Duke of Zhu's perfect rule brought all under heaven into one harmonious family. Since then, humanity has declined, with the gradual downward trend interrupted only sporadically by partial restorations. Influenced by socialism and modern Western notions of historical progress, this representation of history was turned on its head at the dawn of the 20th century, when modernizers such as Kang Yahweh moved the state of salvation into the near future. Kang's famous book of great unity foresaw a harmonized, peaceful world in which all would be equal in all respects, including economically and rivalry would be overcome as everyone strove to be humane and self-cultivated. This fusion of the Confucian and the modern, Metzger explains, prepared the way for the importation of Marxist-Leninist utopianism in the mid-20th century, and it remains influential in Chinese thought. Philosopher Zhao Tengyang of Peking University has made waves in recent years by outlining a vision of global moral revolution, whereby partiality will be eradicated from the hearts of all people. Doesn't that never seems likely when you have the eradication of human nature. But okay, let's go on. Diplomatic tensions will become obsolete and the world's cultures will come to respect one another. His latest monograph, All Under Heaven, reiterates his plea to replace political conflict with a worldwide order of friendships. Politics must become an art for transforming enmity into friendship rather than a technology for coping with competitive conflict. Okay, a great topic, by the way, here. And uh, even though you may not like Derrida and people like him, you know, this idea of a politics of friendship, it's the name of one of Derrida's books, definitely a topic worth looking into further. But Derrida's is not morally utopian in the way that uh, this person's is. Oops, sorry. This moral utopianism conflicts with the core of Western conservatism, whether Burkean, Hayekian, or theological in persuasion. A robust conservatism rests on the Christian notion of human fallenness. It accepts that sin, including everyday selfishness, is an ineradicable feature of human existence and therefore seeks to impose safeguards against the worst abuses of power. Checks and balances, the rule of law, and open debate are indispensable because leaders can never be fully trusted, and political disagreements will always remain. Even the best leaders and citizens have interests and perspectival limitations that affect their judgment. A pessimistic view of human nature, so not a morally utopian one, leads conservatives to conceive a well-ordered society as a balancing act. Order is possible when different institutions and cultural traditions keep each other in check, and compensate for the fallibility of human beings. In the optimistic Chinese view, by contrast, the collective is integrated harmoniously. All of society's parts, including all individuals, can rise to higher moral planes in unison. Chinese demographics has a concept of population quality. As defined by Baidu Baiki, uh, Baiki sorry, however you pronounce it, China's largest online encyclopedia, this term denotes a population's ideological, cultural, and physical qualities. All such qualities, it is believed, can be improved. 
Okay, the qualities of the population can be improved. Everything in society, including the moral character of individuals, can and must grow together when the cultural collective rises and improves, finally yielding a morally perfect society with flawless leaders. Belief in the possibility of fundamental collective improvement of the people's moral character makes Chinese thinkers posit a cultural holism more collectivist than even the most integral visions of Western conservatives. In that sense, the Chinese mainstream might be called more right-wing than Western conservatism itself. But at this point, comparisons shift. Chinese utopianism, a prominent strand in Chinese political thought, has its closest Western counterpart in radical socialism and the dreams of a perfectly harmonious multicultural society of inclusion. In this sense, Chinese utopianism might be characterized as leftist. I'm not going to make any national Bolshevism jokes here. The pivoting of the Chinese social imagination from right to left demonstrates the folly of placing something so complex and complexly different on the Western left-right spectrum. Chinese intellectual life is a different world, albeit one that bears affinities with and shows a great deal of interest in Western conservatism. Perhaps we can return the interest and even muster sympathy, since so long as perfect global harmony has not yet materialized, it will be necessary for the West and China to coexist while disagreeing about many things. So we've been reading this article by Eric Hendricks Kim, a very nice article, quite enjoyed that, published in First Things, a magazine that I recommend you take a look at, doing great work over there. Uh, Okay, so the reading Huntington, reading Strauss, I pointed out some connections with Dugan as well, and you can see uh, Dugan lecturing in Chinese universities on YouTube. So a lot there to think about. I hope that you enjoyed that. You should uh, give this author a follow, give the magazine a follow or subscribe to them, whatever you do. If you want courses on Strauss, you know, millermanschool.com. I offer some on Dugan as well, obviously. Let's see. Uh, Okay. Once again, good to be with everybody. Uh, Very, very nice to be live streaming with you once more after a long hiatus. Thank you for the super sticker. I appreciate that. Uh, Lemon character waving his arm to say hello with his mouth open. Thank you. Uh, Charles, Christopher, good to see you. Uh, Blogging Theology, Paul, nice to see you. Uh, Another great YouTube channel there, Blogging Theology. Go have a look. Subscribe. Kevin, good to be with you. Oleg, nice to see you. So I appreciate it. I'm going to be doing some more of these spontaneous live streams, article readings, and all of that. China and conservative authors, okay? I think the most interesting thing for me when I read it, not just in this essay, but in other ones as well, is that the Chinese are so keen on the study of Strauss that they've translated more of his works than the uh, English-speaking world has. That's pretty astounding. Strauss, study him. Great article, first things, okay? Thanks to the author, thanks to you, and see you in the next live stream. Everybody, uh, take care.